Well, it's been an interesting week, I have to say. Um, as you all know, this week, our senior pastor, Pastor Steve Bray, uh, started his long journey uh, driving across the province and going down to uh, his old church in PEI, which is where he is right now celebrating with our brothers and sisters in PEI. You should pray for him uh, as they have their vacation time. You guys all know he's a it takes him a little time to slow down and not work anymore. So during this vacation thing, pray for him and pray for Debbie to have patience with him. Uh, and I really hope he doesn't listen to this sermon. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so because he was leaving on Wednesday, I had to come in early a little bit for this week. Usually I work here on Thursdays and Fridays to help out, get a few things done. This week I came in a little early you know, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to try and get some things done for the church. And I started to notice this really interesting thing that started to happen about Monday around the church. It may have started Sunday, but I wasn't here, so I didn't see it. Anyway, I saw these cars, and usually we're up on Kenmount Road, so people will often turn in here and turn around and go back out. But they were doing something completely different this week. They came down, they pulled up, they went into the parking lot, took out their cell phones, and then started putting them up around and s looking through them as through the camera, and then they'd play with it, and then they would turn around and drive away. And usually, usually we get maybe five or six people in a day. I counted 20. 20 people doing this very strange thing where they would drive up here, just play with their phone for a little while, and then drive away. Very odd. I thought maybe a lot of people had gotten lost or something. They were all checking GPS or something. But this week, th later on in the week, uh, some of our technical crew uh, sh helped me to understand what was going on. You see, despite the fact that you can't see it right now, right now in this room, there are little animated animals running around. And if you, if you want, if you have the phone app, you can capture them. And, and, and if you capture all of them, apparently the slogan is got to get them all or something, you, you, can f you can fight with them. And this, this building actually is a gym for these Pokemon. Now, I, I'm taking this all on faith. Apparently the, the app isn't released in Canada yet. There's uh, people in the room who have the app, apparently. A few people. You might, guys might want to talk with each other about which teams you're on and whether you should be fighting each other and stuff. But because of the fact that these people have uh, an application and are playing this game, they've started to do behavior that I think, well, before I actually knew what was going on, was a little strange. Because of the way that they were looking at the world around us, what they were doing looked weird to me who simply doesn't have the same framework. They have a little game which is giving them an, what they call an augmented reality game, uh, an augmented reality that allows them to see things that I can't see and to play games that I can't play because I don't have the framework they do. And I mean, this does cause people to do a whole bunch of different, very strange things. And this can be dangerous. It can cause you to do foolish things. Uh, if you could cue the video, please. This is <laughs> New Station in Pittsburgh. She was hit by a car, suffered only minor injuries, but this teenager learned a valuable lesson about playing Pokemon Go. I was like, that damn game, I shouldn't have let her play it. Tracy Nolan shares her anger over judge. Pokemon Go. This is her 15-year-old daughter, Autumn Dysonrob, <laughs> recovering from injuries after she was hit by a car. The teenager says Pokemon Go took her across a busy intersection at Ross Street and East 9th Avenue in Toronto. She made it across the street safely the first time as she captured Pokemon. Dysonrob was hit on the way back across the street after playing the game. It took me to the museum and I got it and then I walked back to the highway, I put the phone down on my side. Nolan blames the game for putting her daughter in an area she wouldn't normally visit. 
but kids don't just cross a highway. You know, they're, they're not going to walk across the highway for no reason. This thing had her walking across the highway to find a Pokemon. When she called and said that she was hit by a car, I blamed the game because she would not have been out of my house. My daughter is a hermit. And Dizerov blames the game too. To where, like, how it is set up, to where we have the crossroads to go get it, it's on that part, yeah, I do blame it. Now, state police, they're also sending out a warning to people playing Pokemon Go, saying that the game can cause injuries. That warning also goes out to non-users who drive to be on the lookout for people not paying attention while playing the game. Reporting live, Sheldon Ingram, Pittsburgh's Action News 4. Honestly, I didn't really believe that this would be as big a deal as it is. This game has only been about uh, out about a two weeks, and now it's already more used than Twitter. So we're talking about a very, very large game that, again, as I said, changes the way that people are seeing reality. It causes them to act in different ways differently than other people are normally acting. People who can see the game understand that this makes perfect sense to possibly be walking around with your phone up like this so you can see where the Pokemon are. But it doesn't make sense to the rest of us because we have a different framework. This, and, and, and I do have a point. I didn't want to just be trendy by saying, talking about Pokemon Go this morning. Uh, though, you know, it, it is awfully trendy and it makes me sound really uh, with it. I've never played Pokemon. I have no idea about this game. So uh, this is all, uh, all of this stuff comes from uh, somebody else telling me about it. But our text for this morning, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 7 to 14, actually deals with something very close to this point, to this understanding, something that we can learn about the way we see the world, how we see the world alters the way that we see, that we do things. If we see the world in certain frameworks, we'll act certain ways that make perfect sense for that framework. But we'll make, we'll act in ways that may not seem sane or may not seem regular to other people. And it's important as believers, as people who know Jesus Christ, who know reality through God, to see the world in the correct way. Because to not see the world in the correct way can cause us problems. This is starting to read at verse 7. Again, Nehemiah chapter 4. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to clo be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set as a, uh, as a, a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. At, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I, this is Nehemiah saying, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. See, what was happening here is an easy thing to see. Some people, if we remember, uh, if we remember from the previous sermons, Nehemiah was called from his place in Babylon. He was been speaking to the king. The king had sent him back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. As we talked about in that time period, rebuilding walls was an important thing. This is how a city gets protection from those around them. This is how a group of people can maintain some security, some semblance of uh, normalcy in the midst of an open space. If there are no walls, there's nothing to keep raiders out, there's nothing to keep people who would do you harm out, and there's nothing to keep you in and safe. 
And so in the ancient world, building walls was very, very important to the maintenance of a community. And Nehemiah wanted to see the community of Israel rebuilt after they had been sent into exile for their sin uh, about 70 years earlier. And so he wanted to see the, he was called of God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But as we talked about, opposition comes when people want to follow God. I mean, we should kind of understand that. Uh, The whole sweep of scripture talks about how we as sinners go astray, how we are in rebellion to God until God changes our hearts and replaces our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. It talks about how we need to be in submission to God and how without being in submission to God, we tend to work against him and rebel against him. And people who are in rebellion to God don't like to see God's work going forward. It's just the way it works. Because it says things about the way that you should live. It says things about the way that's things that are true and things that are false. I mean, I like to believe that I am the smartest person in the room. And if I believe in the real God of the universe, I know that he is always the smartest person in the room and that there are things that he's going to tell me through his word that I'm going to find out I was in fact wrong. And as a fairly arrogant person at times, that can be, that can be problematic to my psyche. <laughs> and, the real wor- and, and the world outside, uh, you, you laugh at that, but the world outside, having those kinds of problems to your psyche is a bad thing. You know, it's, it, it, they, they put trigger warnings on stuff like that if it causes me offense or it causes me psychic damage. And the, the simple fact is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of what God says in the word, causes psychic damage to people who believe that we're pretty good without God because it shows we're not. And so people oppose it, as we see here. But more importantly, we notice something else. Notice how the people of Israel are responding here. First of all, we've got Sembalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites all going against Jerusalem. Now, in case you're interested, that means everybody around them. That's a full list of all the kingdoms that are surrounding where Jerusalem is at this time. So everybody all around them hate them. They're building up military force. They're saying, we're going to take you over. We're going to invade you. We're going to cause problems for you. And uh, in fact, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work, verse 11. But the, the interesting thing I want to talk about is the way that the Jews reply, the way that they start to respond. You see, they've been given a call of God to rebuild the city. They have seen God work. They've seen God actually start building a wall and making the Babylonians pay for it. It's an important, it's it's God working and they should see that. But notice what starts to happen as they face persecution and the difficulties of building the wall. First of all, they they start to get tired. Uh, Verse 10, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And we lose some of it in coming from Hebrew. Apparently, this is a fairly, uh, a fairly catchy little rhyme in Hebrew. So people would just keep saying this. So they face difficulties and they start to get tired and they see the work that still needs to be done, despite the fact that as we see, the walls are being rebuilt, the areas are getting filled in. But they're seeing, they're looking at the wall, the stuff that needs to be done, the rubble that's still around, and it's causing them to be tired. And then the enemies start saying negative things about them. And then the Jews who are out on the outskirts of Jerusalem, who are living closer to the Ashdodites and the Ammonites and the Arabs, start saying, you guys should come back to us. These guys want to kill you. They want to get rid of you. They, they, They don't like you. So you should come back to us and be safe. Which, honestly, from a worldly viewpoint, makes perfect sense. Think about it. You have family, you have children, parents, friends, brothers, and sisters. 
maybe someone that you've been dating for a while and just really in love with, and they're working on this wall at Jerusalem, and you hear that there's going to be this military force coming in to try and cause confusion and cause you division and problems and kill you, and they seem to be okay with you as long as you don't rebuild the wall. So the natural response is, the natural response in the framework of that we normally have is to say, well, then maybe I shouldn't be rebuilding the wall. It's kind of dangerous. I shouldn't be following through on this. You see, the people of Israel had started to see the call of God and God's glory through their circumstances. They had imagined that uh, their circumstances changed the way that things should be seen. This is really common thinking. And you see, what I'm going to say today, and what I think the text is telling us, is that the right way to see it is to view our circumstances through the glory and call of God. So get what I'm saying. I am saying that it's very natural for us, it's common for us to start looking at the world around, uh, to look at what God says and what God says in his word and what God calls us in our lives. It's very common for us to look at that through the lens of our own experiences and circumstances. I'm saying that as Christians, as people of God, as believers, our call is to actually do the reverse and see our circumstances through the call and the glory of God. This isn't just semantics. This is really, really, really important for us. Now, I I do have to give you a bit of a warning here and a proviso and a you know, a disclaimer. I'm not saying that we need to be thinking magically. I'm not saying ignore the circumstances we're in. There is a very current form of Christian theology that would imagine that our main job as Christians is to, in faith, ignore bad stuff. If there's bad stuff around us, if there's bad kinds of things going on in the society or uh, um, with people around us, or if we have things going wrong in our own lives, ignore that and just have faith in Jesus because Jesus will fix it all. Um, I do believe Jesus is powerful. I do believe that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. I do believe that he can do great, amazing, miraculous things in our lives but I do not see in the Bible anywhere where it tells us to ignore our circumstances. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we should uh, screw up our faith and say, well, I I know that I'm actually in a bad situation financially. I know that I'm lonely. I know that that I have horrible disease, but I believe in Jesus really, really strongly, so I don't need to think about that kind of thing. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something a little bit more nuanced than that. You see, we, and we can tell that this isn't the way that, 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 that we're supposed to see it. We can see it in the text here. Look at what Nehemiah does. He doesn't say, well, God is very powerful, so these armies are no problem at all for God. He doesn't say to the people of Israel, you don't need to keep working on the wall. You know, God, by his miraculous power, will destroy all the rubble and lift it up and build walls. Contrary to what some comedians say, Christians do not believe that Jesus is magic. We believe that Jesus is the king, that he's the Lord. But he's not magical. We don't suddenly get super mystic powers by turning to Christ. Rather, we have wisdom. We have knowledge. We have life. We have truth but we still face real-world situations. Real stuff happens. If, and, and allow me to say this pretty clearly. If you have cancer, yes, pray. The el- get the elders to come in and, lay, uh, and give you anointing and things. We're here for that. But also go to your doctor. God gave them gifts for those reasons. 
Heck, we have doctors in the congregation who do that kind of thing. God gives them gifts for that. So don't ignore situations. I mean, we know that this isn't the case, not even just in Nehemiah. There's entire books of the Bible about living wisely. Uh, Proverbs, anybody? You, you can hear all Jesus in his repeated Proverbs giving us ways to think wisely about things, to act wisely in our lives. If the King of Kings and Lord of Lords became incarnate of man and believed that it was important for us to have wisdom in how to live in the real world, chances are good we need to know that. He intended us to know that. Heck, in the letters, and the epistles, you can see repeated things where Paul and Peter and John are telling us things about how we should live and be wise to life. So I'm not saying to not be wise. I'm not saying to ignore the circumstances we have. What I'm saying is that we need to be careful of seeing God, his call, and his glory through our circumstances. You see, that's the problem that the people of Israel are, are facing. In verse 10, when they say that the burdens have become too heavy and the, there's too much rubble, they're saying that they're looking more at the rubble than the God who told them to move it. Because the God doesn't give you commands that he doesn't want you to fulfill. He actually expects you to do them. When the Lord says, put to death the deeds of the flesh, he means it. When he says, you know, live lives worthy of the calling within you, he meant it. When he tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to <laughs> even oddly enough, love our enemies, he means it. These are real things that we need to do, but they're hard. I mean, lifting a few, few pieces of rubble is nothing towards compared to trying to love somebody who really is your enemy. Notice he didn't even say love people who you think might be your enemy. He said love your enemies, people who actually really do hate you. You are required by God to love them. That's really hard to do. That's really hard to do. And there's a lot of things in the Christian life that are just really hard. But the thing that we need to be sure of is to be clear that we don't look at the things that God has called us to do through our circumstances and imagine, I can't do it. Uh, I've talked to a few people about a couple of the struggles that I have in my own life. I am, uh, to use the scientific term, socially awkward. I have trouble reading social cues, I just do. It's hard for me to not say rude things at the wrong times. It really is. I, and if, you, if, I've, if, if I've insulted you with something I've said recently, I am so sorry. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> but let's face it, I can't just stop and say, well, I'm socially awkward, so I, it's okay that I'm rude to people. I mean, rudeness really hurts people. I have to work on it. My circumstances don't change the call that God has put on my life. I am still required to weep with those who weep, regardless of whether or not I, don't, I can't really read from their facial expressions that they're weeping. I still need to learn. Uh, lots of other people in the congregation have problems with other things. I don't know what kinds of circumstances you're in. Maybe God calls himself Father, and you had the worst father in the world. And so thinking of God as Father just doesn't help you at all. But he does reveal himself as Father. So yes, it's hard, but it's something that we need to follow through on. It's something we need to do. Uh, if you're, <laughs> I mean, I hate to deal with the fact that, you know, we natu naturally have urges and lusts and things that move us towards sinful ideas. If you're a kleptomaniac, you naturally try to steal stuff, you still have to try to stop stealing. I totally understand it's going to be harder for you than for regular people. But you're still called to do it. Again, don't read God's call through the circumstances. Beware of that. You see, that, and that's the same with the danger that they see. Verses 7 and 8 and 11 and 12. They see danger around them. They see difficulty around them. 
and it's real danger. It's not made up. Nehemiah stations guards for a reason. He tells the people of Israel they need to fight for their families for a reason. They really are possibly going to attack. They really don't like you. It's a real problem. But he doesn't say run away because of that. He still has a call. It's very easy for us to, though, look at the calls we have and imagine that because they're so hard, because our circumstances make them more difficult, that we, ha- we can ignore them. It, it, just to let Nehemiah off the hook and the people of Israel off the hook a little bit, this is still the case now. This week, um, the church that I grew up in, I, was, I used to be Anglican. In fact, I became a Baptist while I was training to be a minister in the Anglican church. It's a great story. You, you, can, you can buy me nachos. I'll tell you all about it. But I, as a result, I have a lot of friends who are still in the Anglican Church and who are actually in leadership positions in the Anglican Church. And this week, they, uh, they had a vote about same-sex marriage. Now, again, we can talk later about what the Bible actually says about that. For the moment, we'll just point out, uh, I'll just go, from, go to the end of the page and give you the answer. The Bible's against it. Uh, d- it, uh, we can talk about that later. If you have disagreements with me, I'll be at the back of the room. Uh, again, buy me nachos, I'll talk to you forever. Um, but while they were doing it, uh, I had a friend of mine who said, we have to accept this because we need to be more relevant. The church, naturally, and in a lot of cases, when you face churches that are kind of shrinking in size and facing difficulties, as my friend's Anglican church is, sometimes you have the temptation to look at the circumstances of the culture you're in and say, we need to be more agreeing with the culture because, you know, we want to be, ag- be them to say we're okay. We want them to come to us. We want them to see us as valuable again. And, I mean, it's tactically a bad idea, but let's face it, from a, from a rationalistic kind of point of view, if you really just want people to like you and you don't care about the truth of God, per se, per se it makes perfect sense to go that direction. But just to let my liberal Christian friends off the hook a bit too, it's the same thing that happens with us. I mean, how often have you lived a Christi- in your Christian life and you seem to see Jesus as more of an escape hatch than your Lord? I mean, think about it. I, I, I do this all the time when I, when I'm, we're, we're Pastor Steve, uh, in a very cruel kind of joke, decided that we would all read through uh, the McChain reading plan at the same time. Now, the McChain reading plan only takes about 15 minutes a day, and you know what? It's a really good idea to do it, but I'm not very good at repeated events over and over again that require discipline. I am one of the least disciplined pe- people you will ever meet. It's, it's hard for me. And again, this is why circumstances, I have to still go through with it. But because of that, I find myself, uh, starting to do this, I find myself understanding the world a little differently and seeing things a little differently. I, I, I don't see, I don't try to turn to God as I- in the last minute anymore because I'm seeing God every day. But for the longest time, I've just kind of left the Bible reading or the prayer and things off to the side until something's going wrong in my life, until I feel something bad happening. I mean, uh, again, my lack of discipline. Uh, I am a single man. I desire to be married someday. You know, it's getting a little less unlikely. But I find that I only pray for it when I'm feeling lonely. Yet, the Bible talks about, you know, pray without ceasing. The Bible tells me I should be uh, becoming the person that God calls me to be, irrelevant of what situations I'm dealing with, or whether I'm single or married or whatever. Some people say, the Bible also says that's a gift. My job as a Christian is to actually see these things through the scriptures and not as a response. I mean, it even goes further. In my younger Christian years, I can remember times when I actually did things I knew God hated. I, I, I really did. I, I, I know God is against drunkenness. 
uh, word of, word of ad admission here, in my early Christian life, I got drunk once. I did stupid stuff then. No long stories, but let's just face it, you do stupid things. And yet I can remember, after I had done stupid stuff, praying to God that he would fix all the problems because of the stupid stuff I did that I shouldn't have done. How often do we do that? We, we, allow, God, we allow God to sit on the side, to be our sideman, our, our wingman, when he's our king. And we're supposed to be his wingman. We should be following him, not going our own way and then hoping that God will fix it when we make mistakes, as we invariably will. But it, it, it's even more clear than that. Uh, most of you will know that I'm also a scholar. I go to the university. I'm studying something called secularization theory. And one of the things I've learned about the culture that we have in Newfoundland is that we're very, very individualistic, like the rest of North America. And that fits into the church. Oftentimes we read our understanding of the Bible through our very hyper-individualized culture. Uh, how many of us actually see each other in the rest of the week? How many of us are praying for one another the rest of the week? We're actually called to do that in the Word of God. How many of us really are close enough to one another to be considered parts of the same body? I mean, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 31. Bear with me while I read it because it's kind of an important passage. For just as the, one, as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized, all, from the Greek meaning all. <laughs> I, I always enjoy adding Greek words there. It, you know, it makes me sound smarter. Um, but we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. Now, just, just think through what this is meaning for us. This means that the Bible is saying we are called to be members of one body. God has called each and every one of us, not just the elders, not just the deacons, every single one of us to fulfill roles in the church that we're in right now. Uh, I would even go so far as to say, even if you're visiting today, God called you here for a reason today, and he's got roles for you to fulfill today. Fulfill them. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the bodies that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So often we as a culture follow the individualistic thing and imagine that the problems of the person over there aren't my problems. You know, they're not me, it's another family, it's another person, it's another, another thing going on. That's not what the Bible is saying. It, in fact, it gets even more blunt about it. I'm just going to skip down a bit here. If one member suffers, this is verse 26, all suffer together. If one member is, is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. See, there is an individualism involved. If it's individually, you are members of the body. Yet, because we live in a culture that's designed to be individualistic, everything is right as long as I don't hurt anybody else. Tell me if you've heard that before. You've, you've heard that before? I'm not the only one who hears that ever, all the time. We imagine that we don't actually have any responsibility to one another. And yet, that is precisely what I'm talking about. We end up looking at the Word of God, what the Word of God says in a very long passage of Scripture. And this isn't the only one that talks about community. 
and we reinterpret what God says about the church and about what community is supposed to look like, that we are supposed to care for one another, that we're supposed to love one another, that we're supposed to set things up for one another, that we, regardless of whether or not we're separated by distance also, by the way. We imagine that that's not the case because we live in a culture that's designed to be individualistic, that, you know, everything's fine as long as things are fine with me. Don't, we have to be careful of this. You see, seeing things through the wrong framework can lead you to doing very unwise things. That's what, that's the danger that we see with the people of Israel in Nehemiah's time. It's the danger we see within our church when we reinterpret our word through the circumstances and through our culture instead of reinterpreting our culture through the, through the word. What happens when 15-year-old girls play Pokemon games too much and start walking across traffic? It's unwise things because we're looking at the world unwisely. We're imagining that we can reinterpret what God says based on what we already believe, with the circumstances we live in. You see, what God actually calls us to and what you can see at work in Nehemiah's actions in verses 7 to 14 there, is that we need to see our circumstances through an accurate and clear understanding of God's glory and God's call. Look at what Nehemiah does. This is verses 13 and 14. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, notice he's thinking about this. He's thinking, we need to actually set guards around the place to keep people safe, and we're going to be thinking about it wisely, so I'm going to put them in the lowest places behind the wall so people can't pick them off, and they can, be see, they can see people coming, but other people can't see them waiting. And I'm going to station them with their boards and spears and their bows. So he's being wise. He's placing them wisely in places to deal with the real issue that's there. But more importantly, in verse 14, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, so everybody, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Notice he doesn't just say, remember the Lord who is a pretty good guy and has called us to do this. He says the Lord is great and awesome. And we live in an age where the word awesome has lost most of its meaning. He's actually saying that God is far more important than anything that we're dealing with here. That you need to put God in the place that he is. He's above all things. He knows all things and he's sovereign over all things. He's awesome and great. Remember him. And in that, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Notice the second part isn't primary. It isn't, you know, remember your homes and your wives and your daughters and your sons. And so fight really well. Remember God who is God. And then do what, what you're called to do. Protect your family. Protect your home. Protect the God, call that God's made. See, that's, that's also what my liberal friends need to learn about relevance. You see, you're never going to be relevant to a culture out there by just being like them. As Christian believers, you may be very well liked by your friends if you live like they do, if you accept the things that they say, if you just go along with the crowd. They'll like you okay, but they won't respect you. You won't be the kind of person that changes people's minds about things. Friends, God calls us to be heroic. He calls us to be lights in a darkened world. He calls us to stand against the evils we see around us, not as some kind of uh, Superman who can just break things, but as a person who knows the truth and lives according to the truth. Friends, you're called to be heroic. We, we talk about how the saints of the old go through these passages and, you know, they, they stand up and do, thi do great things. As a history geek, I remember guys like Athanasius who, went when the entire Roman Empire, including the emperor, when the church that he was serving was ready to kick him out 
because they all wanted to say that Jesus wasn't really God. He was just a created divine being. And Athanasius stands and says no. And he says, I will stand contra mundum. I will stand against the whole world to say the truth of who Christ is. And we say that that's very heroic. We remember him as a great heroic leader. But let's face it, when he was doing that, he probably didn't feel very heroic. I think probably the word would be terrified because people probably did really want him dead. We talk about guys like Martin Luther. This is the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, he stands before the emperor of the, of the German Empire at the time, and he says, I, I am bound captive by the word of God. I, I, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. And we remember that as, yeah, way to go, uh, Luther. But remember Luther's situation. Right after that, he had to be kidnapped by his friends so that the German king wouldn't kill him. Friends, we are faced with a world that is opposed to God. We just are. And we live as people who are changed by God, who see the truth of who God is. We cannot afford to reinterpret God through our circumstances. Rather, we must see our circumstances rightly by interpreting them through what God says. That's the totality of what we're called to be as Christians here. And you know what? As I said, it's going to be hard. It is. I'm not going to tell you that, you know, people are going to love you right now because you stand for what truth is. I'm going to tell you the opposite. Lots of people are going to hate you for standing for truth. Many people who actually even claim the name of Christ will dislike you for standing for truth. Most people would want you to reinterpret the world based on what we already believe. Most people want you to think through circumstance, through make your circumstances the king and make God serve your circumstances. Our calling is to stand above this, stand in Christ and put Christ above everything else and live our circumstances through who we know God is. And friends, he is awesome. I mean, again, one of the reasons why I really like the Bible reading plan that we're doing. Again, it keeps me from uh, chicken McNuggeting the Bible, taking little parts of it and pretending that this is the totality of what God has for me today. You know, I can do all God things, God who, all things through God who strengthens me. Not, you know, I've been shipwrecked 13 times and ended up and beaten five times and friends uh, in danger at sea, danger on land, which, by the way, is the same context. I, uh, it keeps me from seeing it that way, and I get to see what the Word of God really says. And friends, if you haven't been reading the Bible, God is really awesome. He is really great. He really does know what's happening. He really does have a plan for this situation what we're in right now. This mild momentary affliction, as the world says, is not worthy of comparison to the glory that God has set aside for us in Christ Jesus. Mild momentary affliction, and I mean mild momentary affliction in the sense of we're talking about eternity and this life at the outside is 120 years. If you live the longest life that any human has lived in modern times, you've got 120 years to compare to an eternity of glory. And if every single year of that 120 years is absolutely terrible, it's not worth comparing to the glory we have in Christ. But we'll forget that if we simply focus on our circumstances instead of the Lord who is sovereign over the circumstances. We need to see our circumstances not just through an idea of who, of who God is, not just through the conception of who God is, but through an accurate and clear understanding of God's glory and God's call.
We need to seek to know God. That is my application for today. We need to seek to know God and then act accordingly. I don't know all of you. I don't know if all of you are believers or not. In fact, I've, I'm kind of dumb. I told you I can't really read facial expressions and read things like that. I don't know who of you are believers and who aren't. But if you don't know Jesus today, step one in living the kind of life that God calls you to, the kind of heroic, amazing life God calls you to, that yes, has difficulties, but redounds to the glory of God for all eternity. The first step, ask him into your life. Pray now. If you find yourself without the ability to believe in God, turn to God right now and ask him to give you that ability. God, he promises, he gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And the Holy Spirit testifies as to who Jesus Christ is. And so, friends, if you want to know Christ today, if you see it as compelling to know Jesus today, pray to him, ask about that. If, if you have trouble even praying about that and you still have some small inkling of a desire to hear about God more, come talk to me. You don't even have to buy me nachos. I'll buy the nachos if you're, co- you're going to talk to me about Jesus. Seriously, there are elders in the church who would love to talk with you about the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ. If you want to come to Saving Faith, go right ahead. Come talk to us. But if you are a believer, and this is actually kind of more who I'm aiming this whole message to because I think the problem that that we run into is that believers, though we believe, tend to fall into the same ways of thinking that the world falls into. It's important that we actually seek to know God. And I use the word know advisedly. I know that, I, that you can talk to postmoderns who talk about how you can't know anything. I mean know. I mean actually know the truth, uh, believe it, uh, understand it, know at the bottom of the basics of the universe that this is true. We need to know God. And we, I mean, I've kind of danced around it a little bit, but we, we have... Uh, an inerrant, infallible guide to it. And, you know, I use the words inerrant and infallible, and some people get mad at me for using the words inerrant and infallible. It means doesn't have errors, and you can trust it. And people say, well, humans can't make inerrant, infallible books. My up-to-date phone directory is both inerrant and infallible. I, I mean, I can call anybody on my list, and it will get me the correct phone number, at least as far as I know right now, if it's up-to-date, it's, it's an inerrant and infallible wor- book. The important part about this one, it's the inferent, infallible word of God. Friends, you can learn about God and know that it's true. Don't just trust me on it. Open your Bibles. I mean, it's possible that I'm just speaking out of my... Uh, out of the side of my mouth here. I, I might not know what I'm talking about. If you think, if you have an argument with anything I've said today, go here, see if I'm right. Check me. If you don't know God now, if you find in your own life, you find it difficult to live your life according to the things that you, know, you say you know in Christ, turn here. Pray to God, get to know God, and learn from him. Learn the things that he really says, the the way he has clearly revealed himself to us in history, in black and white, where you can sit down, you can read it, you can understand it. The the Bible is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that the Bible is able to train us uh, in righteousness, that the person of God may be prepared for every good work. Friends, we have this amazing thing. If you have problems living your life as a, as a good believer, I'm going to go out of, on a limb and say your problem isn't necessarily just the discipline. The problem is you don't know the God properly. You don't know God's will properly. You don't know God's glory properly. So learn God's glory. If, if you find that the text is dry and it, it's not speaking to you, pray, ask God by his spirit to open your eyes. But friends, get to know God. Seek to know God. Seek to know him while he may be found. 
which means now. And then act accordingly. Friends, let's not be lost in the eddies and flows of whatever the culture is going to come up with over the next few years. The f- if anybody who's followed culture for any length of time can say anything, it's, that l- it's f- extremely fickle and we have no idea where it's going in the long run. Because we don't. Because the world just follows whatever their circumstances bring them to. Don't be like that. Instead, trust in God. Trust in the God, w- not a God that you, know, you can build in your imagination, but the true God who reveals himself to us. And live according to that. We can pray. Lord God, right after I talk so much about you, I, I am convicted in my own heart. Lord, I don't always see you as how amazing you are. Lord, I don't always trust in what you've given. Well, God, so often when I want to say that all I have is Christ, in reality, I live like all I have is my bank account and my, fu- and my home and my uh, intellect and my uh, handsome good looks. When in fact, really, <laughs> all I have is Christ and everything else should be seen through him. Lord God, by your word, you've opened my eyes to my hopeless estate without you. By your holy word, I see the glorious gift you gave in your son, Jesus Christ, to save me despite my humble estate. I see the glory of a God who stands over all things, who can say to the furthest most molecule on the furthest most star system to do something, and it does it because he's God. Lord God, Keep me from the foolishness of believing in things that aren't you. In the foolishness of imagining that I can reinterpret who you are based on the things I'm going through. Rather, let me trust in you wholly and see my life through Christ in whom I live and move and have my being. And God's people say, Amen.